Section 10 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. Section 10. Selected Essays by James Darmestetter. James Darmestetter, 1849-1894 A good example of the latter-day enlightened savant is the French Jew James Darmestetter, whose premature death robbed the modern world of scholarship of one of its most distinguished figures. Scholars who do noble service in adding to the sum total of human knowledge often are specialists, the nature of whose work excludes them from general interest and appreciation. It was not so with this man, not alone an oriental philologist of more than national repute, but a broadly cultured original mind, an enlightened spirit, and a master of literary expression. Darmestetter calls for recognition as a maker of literature as well as a scientist. The son of a humble Jewish bookbinder, subjected to the disadvantages and hardships of poverty, James Darmestetter was born at Chateau Salaine in Lorraine in 1849 but got his education in Paris, early imbibing the Jewish traditions, familiar from youth with the Bible and the Talmud. At the public school, whence he was graduated at 18, he showed his remarkable intellectual powers and attracted the attention of scholars like Breal and Bernouf, who, noting his aptitude for languages, advised devotion to Oriental linguistics. After several years of uncertainty, years spent with books and in travel and in the desultory production of poetry and fiction philological study was undertaken as his life work with remarkable results for twenty years he labored in this field and his appointment in eighteen eighty two to succeed renan as secretary of the asiatic society of france speaks volumes for the position he won in eighteen eighty five he became professor of iranian languages and literature in the college of france other scholastic honors fell to him in due course and good measure. As a scholar, Darmestetter's most important labors were the exposition of Zoroastrianism, the national faith of ancient Persia, which he made a specialty, and his French translation of and commentary on the Avesta, the Bible of that religion. As an interpreter of Zoroaster, he sought to unite synthetically two opposing modern schools, that which relied solely upon native traditions, and that which, regarding these as untrustworthy, drew its conclusions from an examination of the text, supplemented by the aid of Sanskrit on the side of language, and of the Vedas on the side of religion. Darmestetter's work was thus boldly comprehensive. He found in the Avesta the influence of such discordant elements as the Bible, Buddha, and Greek philosophy, and believed that in its present form it was composed at a later time than has been supposed. These technical questions are still mooted points with the critics. The translation of the Avesta will perhaps stand as his greatest achievement. A Herculean labor of four years, it was rewarded by the Academy of Inscriptions and Belles Lettres with the 20,000 franc prize given but once in a decade for the work which, in the Academy's opinion, had best served or brought most honor to the country. But the technical accomplishments of learning represent but a fragment of Darmestetter's amazing mental activity. He wrote a striking book on the Mahdi, the tenacious belief in the Mohammedan Messiah taking hold on his imagination. He was versed in English literature, 
edited Shakespeare, and introduced his countrymen to Browning. While in Afghanistan on a philological mission, he gathered, merely as a side pursuit, a unique collection of Afghan folk songs, and the result was a fascinating and valuable paper in a new field. He helped to found a leading French review, articles of travel, critiques on subjects political, religious, literary, and social, fell fast from his pen. In his general essays on these broader, more vital aspects of thought and life, he is an artist in literary expression, a writer with a distinct and great gift for form. Here his vigorous mind, ample training, his humanistic tastes and humanitarian aspirations are all finely in evidence. The English reader who seeks an introduction to Darmstadter is directed to his selected essays translated by Helen B. Jastrow, edited with a memoir by Professor Morris Jastrow, Jr., Houghton Mifflin Company, Boston. There is a translation by Ada S. Ballin of his The Mahdi, Harper and Brothers, New York, and in the Contemporary Review for January 1895 is a noble appreciation of Darmstadter by his friend Gaston Paris. In the Sacred Books of the East will be found an English rendering of the Avesta by Darmstadter and Mills. As a thinker in the philosophical sense, Darmstadter was remarkable. Early breaking away from Orthodox Judaism, his philological and historical researches led him to accept the conclusions of destructive criticism with regard to the Bible. And a disciple of Renan, he became enrolled among those scholars who see in science the one explanation of the universe. But possessing, along with his keen analytic powers, a nature dominantly ethical, he made humanity his idol. His patriotism for France was intense, and, a Jew always sympathetic to the wonderful history of his people, in his later years, by a brilliant, poetical, almost audacious interpretation of the Old Testament, he found a solution of the riddle of life in the Hebrew prophets. What he deemed their essential faith, Judaism stripped of ritual and legend, he declared to be in harmony with the scientific creed of the present, belief in the unity of moral law, the Old Testament Jehovah, and belief in the eventual triumph of justice upon this earth, the modern substitute for the New Testament heaven. This doctrine, which in most hands would be cold and comfortless enough, he makes vital, engaging, through the passionate presentation of an eloquent lover of his fellow man. In a word, Darmstadter was a positivist, dowered, like that other noble positivist, George Eliot, with a nature sensitive to spiritual issues. An idyllic passage in Darmstadter's toilful scholar life was his tender friendship with the gifted Englishwoman A. Mary F. Robinson. Attracted by her lovely verse, the intellectual companionship ripened into love, and for his half-dozen final years he enjoyed her wifely aid and sympathy in what seems to have been an ideal union. The end, when it came, was quick and painless, always of a frail constitution, stunted in body from childhood. He died in harness, October 19, 1894, his head falling forward on his desk as he wrote, the tributes that followed made plain the enthusiastic admiration James Darmstadter awakened in those who knew him best. The leading Orientalist of his generation, he added to the permanent acquisitions of scholarship, and made his impress as one of the remarkable personalities of France in the late 19th century. In the language of a friend, a Jew by race, a Greek by culture, a Frenchman in heart. He furnishes another illustration of that strain of genius which seems like a compensatory gift to the Jewish folk for its manifold buffetings at the hand of fate. Ernest Renan 
from selected essays copyrighted 1895 by Houghton Mifflin and Company. The mistaken judgments passed upon Monsieur Renan are due to the fact that in his work he did not place the emphasis upon the good, but upon the true. Men concluded that for him, therefore, science was the whole of life. The environment in which he formed was forgotten, an environment in which the moral sense was exquisite and perfect, while the scientific sense was nil. He did not need to discover the moral sense. It was the very atmosphere in which he lived. When the scientific sense awoke in him, and he beheld the world and history transfigured by it, he was dazzled, and the influence lasted throughout his life. He dreamed of making France understand this new revelation. He was the apostle of this gospel of truth and science, but in heart and mind he never attacked what is permanent and divine in the other gospel. Thus he was a complete man, and deserved the disdain of dilettantes morally dead, and of mystics scientifically atonic. What heritage has M. Renan left to posterity? As a scholar, he created religious criticism in France, and prepared for universal science that incomparable instrument, the corpus. As an author, he bequeathed to universal art pages which will endure, and to him may be applied what he said of George Sand. He had the divine faculty of giving wings to his subject, of producing under the form of fine art the idea which in other hands remained crude and formless. As a philosopher, he left behind a mass of ideas, which he did not care to collect in doctrinal shape, but which nevertheless constitute a coherent whole. One thing only in this world is certain, duty. One truth is plain in the course of the world as science reveals it. The world is advancing to a higher, more perfect form of being. The supreme happiness of man is to draw nearer to this God to come, contemplating him in science, and preparing, by action, the advent of a humanity nobler, better endowed, and more akin to the ideal being. Judaism From Selected Essays, copyrighted 1895 by Houghton Mifflin and Company Judaism has not made the miraculous the basis of its dogma, nor installed the supernatural as a permanent factor in the progress of events. Its miracles, from the time of the Middle Ages, are but a poetic detail, a legendary recital, a picturesque decoration, and its cosmogony, borrowed in haste from Babylon by the last compiler of the Bible, with the stories of the apple and the serpent, over which so many Christian generations have labored, never greatly disturbed the imagination of the rabbis, nor weighed very heavily upon the thoughts of the Jewish philosophers. Its rites were never an instrument of faith, an expedient to lull rebellious thought into faith. They are merely cherished customs, a symbol of the family, of transitory value, and destined to disappear when there shall be but one family in a world converted to the one truth. Set aside all these miracles, all these rites, and behind them will be found the two great dogmas which ever since the prophets constitute the whole of Judaism, the divine unity and messianism, unity of law throughout the world, and the terrestrial triumph of justice in humanity. These are the two dogmas which at the present time illuminate humanity in its progress, both in the scientific and social order of things, and which are termed in modern parlance unity of forces and belief in progress. For this reason, Judaism is the only religion that has never entered into conflict, and never can, with either science or social progress, and that has witnessed, and still witnesses, all their conquests without a sense of fear. These are not hostile forces that it accepts or submits to merely from a spirit of toleration or policy, 
in order to save the remains of its power by a compromise. They are old friendly voices, which it recognizes and salutes with joy, for it has heard them resound for centuries already in the axioms of free thought and in the cry of the suffering heart. For this reason the Jews, in all the countries which have entered upon the new path, have begun to take a share in all the great works of civilization, in the triple field of science, of art, and of action, and that share, far from being an insignificant one, is out of all proportion to the brief time that has elapsed since their enfranchisement. Does this mean that Judaism should nurse dreams of ambition, and think of realizing one day that invisible church of the future invoked by some in prayer? This would be an illusion, whether on the part of a narrow sectarian or on that of an enlightened individual. The truth, however, remains that the Jewish spirit can still be a factor in this world, making for the highest science, for unending progress, and that the mission of the Bible is not yet complete. The Bible is not responsible for the partial miscarriage of Christianity due to the compromises made by its organizers, who, in their too great zeal to conquer and convert paganism, were themselves converted by it. But everything in Christianity which comes in a direct line from Judaism lives and will live, and it is Judaism which through Christianity has cast into the old polytheistic world to ferment there until the end of time the sentiment of unity and an impatience to bring about charity and justice. The reign of the Bible and also of the evangelists, in so far as they were inspired by the Bible, can become established only in proportion as the positive religions connected with it lose their power. Great religions outlive their altars and their priests. Hellenism, abolished, counts less skeptics today than in the days of Socrates and Anaxagoras. The gods of Homer died when Phidias carved them in marble, and now they are immortally enthroned in the thought and heart of Europe. The cross may crumble into dust, but there were words spoken under its shadow in Galilee, the echo of which will forever vibrate in the human conscience. And when the nation who made the Bible shall have disappeared, the race and the cult, though leaving no visible trace of its passage upon earth, its imprint will remain in the depth of the heart of generations, who will unconsciously, perhaps, live upon what has thus been implanted in their breasts. Humanity, as it is fashioned in the dreams of those who desire to be called free thinkers, may with the lips deny the Bible and its work, but humanity can never deny it in its heart without the sacrifice of the best that it contains, faith in unity and hope for justice, and without a relapse into the mythology and the might makes right of thirty centuries ago. End of section 10. Recording by Colleen McMahon.